Coming from Collective Church in Fort Worth, Texas, it's Ask Science Mike Live. He's got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. He got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. So we're doing things a little differently this week. This is Ask Science Mike live. Instead of recording lonely in my bedroom, I'm here with a bunch of dear friends in the great state of Texas. And uh, I want to warn you guys, it's a little different this week. I didn't get to cheat and fact check myself on Google. So if I flub anything, I'm sure I'll hear from you on Twitter or on the comment section on AskScienceMike.com. And with that, let's get it started. First of all, uh, thank you for being here in Fort Worth with us. Uh, I think it's just great that you came all this way to be here. So, uh, What's your name? My name is Chad. Hey, Chad. Hi. My question is, is I have um, had a pastor speak, and on a few different occasions, he's kind of talked about, you know, God has designed us to be more social, relational beings. And, you know, um, he's kind of talked about, you know, kind of the, the extroverted people kind of being more in that, in, that, in that area. And then from my experience, introverted people are a little more judgmental in, in nature. And so I don't want to judge that, and I don't want to judge introverted people. Um, my question being, uh, I guess my own personality test that I've done, I'm, I tend to be a little more ambiverted in nature. So my question being, if you wanted to transition from the more ambiverted to the more extreme extroverted, what is our ability to be able to, to make that type of transition? All right. Great question. What does science say about that? What does science say about extroversion, introversion, ambiversion, and more importantly, how we can transition in between them? So a couple of misnomers about introversion and extroversion. Uh, introverts are not necessarily shy, first of all. Uh, my wife is an introvert, and people are like, no way, Jenny's not an introvert. She's a social introvert, so she can really turn it on for a crowd or for a party, but she spends some essential part of her soul doing that, and at some point goes, I'm done. We have to go home. And I go, okay, honey, because I'm like an actual extrovert in that when I get done with an event and I go to the hotel room, I'm like depressed because there's nobody there and I'm lonely. But I, I'm an extrovert, but lately I've been very quiet because for a living, I fly from city to city and talk. And I get done talking in front of people and I've realized I don't want to talk at dinner anymore, but I still hate to be by myself. And that's the key difference between extroverts and introverts. Extroverts get energy from being with and around people Introverts spend energy from being around other people. There are actually neurological differences between extroverts and introverts. Now, the third term we had there was ambiverts. The thing is, there's not like you're an extrovert or an introvert. It's a continuum. And so you can imagine like with zero in the middle, you could be zero to 100 extrovert or zero toward 100 Introvert. So my wife is probably really like a 75% introvert, 
and I'm really like a 95% extrovert, a true 100% extrovert would probably be like a psychopath. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's too far. But so there's differences. So when you're an ambivert, it just means you're like between 35 on either sides of the scales, which means you have attributes in your personality that incorporate both extroverted and introverted tendencies. By the way, that's most people, we call that healthy, right? <laughs> most people can be around people for a while, but then they've had enough, except for me. Like, I consider being alone with my wife and kids, right? This is how I'm wired. But what we found is extroverted brains process sensory information differently. Namely, they need a lot more of it to maintain neurological activity. In a very real way, an extrovert's brain gets too quiet without the stimulation of other people around. The noises, the sounds, the constant modeling of other people's emotional states. And in a very real way that's measurable in brain scans, introverts, their brain gets too noisy and too chaotic and too confusing with the same amount of sensory stimulation. So these are actually kind of neurological predispositions. So I don't think it's helpful to think necessarily which one is better, which one's worse. But I do think we have things to learn from each other to be more healthy. As an extrovert, my wife has taught me the importance of quiet moments, of intimate conversations, and deep relationships. Because my tendency is to go from person to person and have a thousand people I know their name, but I don't actually know them really well. <laughs> Those are my friends, <laughs> right? So that's healthy for me to realize that it's important as a human being to invest in fewer people and go deeper and maybe actually learn like people's birthdays and where they're from instead of like one fresh person to hear this story that I really love to tell. <laughs> but on the other hand, my wife learns from me the importance of taking risks, of meeting new people, and frankly, the power hospitality can have, inviting lots of people into your home, can actually be beneficial for your family and for society to create deeper connections with larger groups of people. I believe, as a weirdo, mystic, scientist, sort of theist person, <laughs> that in some, some way, the thing that we call God gave us these personality traits on purpose so that we could reflect a more whole and more healthy society than just extroverts, just introverts, or even just ambiverts could on their own. Hi, I'm Jessica. Hey, I'm Jessica. from Fort Worth. Um, and my question is about carbon dating. Um, I went to a church that was really young earth creationist a long time ago. Um, and they had a lot of these little cartoon tracks that we may have seen a long time ago. And I remember seeing in one of them that there was a study done that said that carbon dating was unreliable. And so I would like for you to um, explain a little bit about how carbon dating works and what that study was and why it's wrong, because I'm sure it is. <laughs> right on. Um... <laughs> Well, in science, we typically withhold judgment until we have data to review, but I like the way you're rolling. Um, science is also becoming the new dogma, which is really strange. Like, there's a lot of people that accept science dogmatically, which is unscientific. Go humans, right? Um, the funny thing is, those studies are absolutely right. 
that say that carbon dating is unreliable, and here's why. Different types of carbon or radiometric dating work for different eras of time. And so if you do a study on the wrong type of carbon dating or radiometric dating for the wrong length of time, it is unreliable, right? So the way uh, radiometric dating works is pretty simple. <laughs> it's not simple at all. I shouldn't have even said that. Uh, certain elements are heavy. Elements, of course, are made of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And they have, uh, because that thing's called isotopes, and so you'll have elements that are pretty heavy and they have a lot of neutrons. And basically that means they're heavy enough that over time their nuclei tend to fall apart. Very radioactive things undergo a process called fission, where they actually break apart into new elements. Lighter elements just become lighter isotopes of themselves. That process, a me way of measuring that's called a half-life, a, ha a half-life of, of an element. So we know through astrophysics, basically, the approximate weights of elements that existed um, when the solar system was formed. And we also understand that under different conditions, different levels of exposure to atmosphere, whatever elements might decay at different rates. And so when we look at something and try to date it, first of all, we use other means to figure out what kind of era we should be looking at. And then we look for the right kind of element that may be in that. And we literally just count the ratio of isotopes to isotopes or elements to elements. And that gives you an approximate amount of time to know how old something is because we know in science that elements decay at a steady rate. We know this because the universe, without exception, when measured, makes sense. It doesn't do random things, except kind of in the quantum world, but they're, they're random within constraints, right? So uh, it's actually really clever the way that creation scientists try to discredit uh, carbon dating because they produce real studies. They don't produce new information. They basically kind of misquote science. And what's interesting is I don't even think that's a conspiracy. I don't think this is some intentional thing because we understand that humans have um, a bias towards self-reinforcing identity. Basically, if you assign a label to yourself, Christian, Baptist, atheist, hipster, progressive, Mickey Mouse, literally whatever label you pick, and you make that part of your identity, you'll unconsciously filter information that subverts your chosen identity. Right? So if you consider yourself progressive on race, for example, and there's some form of evidence that makes you question how progressive you really are on race, you'll just subconsciously filter it out. So if you, if you identity as a young earth creationist, even if you're a scientist, you'll filter out information that undermines claims related to your identity because identity is essential to human psychological health. So yes, carbon dating, really reliable, really re well understood, but it's also not some deceit involved in creation science when they discredit those things. It's just a byproduct of human consciousness and cognitive bias. Hello, I'm also Jessica. Hi, Jessica. Uh, we're a good breed. So um, studies show that children who have experienced neglect or abuse within the first few years of life, up to three or four, actually neurologically don't develop fully 
Um, and this is a personal question because um, when I was 16, we adopted a child who was four years old and had experienced pretty severe neglect and abuse. Uh, he's now 21, and he has a very difficult life, somewhat by choice, but also obviously by creation of other humans. What, what's the hope? What's the therapy mm. for a child that we know neurologically did not get what they needed? How do we rewire them, essentially? Mm. Fantastic question. Thank you. Um, so what, what we're talking about here is there's a condition called basic shame. And basic shame is a neurological condition. It's not purely psychological. Um, it's an actual, the brain structures itself differently when very young children don't feel unconditionally loved, especially by their mothers, okay? And if someone develops basic shame, number one, it's incredibly difficult for them on a neurological level to develop a healthy self-image. They also tend to have atrophy or delayed or reduced development in their orbitofrontal cortex, that's part of the brain behind your eyes that helps you weigh the outcome of the risks of decisions and make ethical judgments. Teenage boys have dramatically smaller orbitofrontal cortexes than teenage girls. And suddenly, like, why young boys jump off houses and wreck cars makes sense because neurologically, they actually can't estimate the outcome of risk like other people. In fact, in men, the orbitofrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until 25 or 26, and now suddenly a lot of people's dating lives make sense, right? <laughs> One day, the guys just woke up. This isn't like social pressure. This isn't social conditioning. This is how brains work. And in a condition of basic shame, that development may never come. The ability to see what may happen if I make choices may never develop, ever. This is why healthy relationships with children is so vital. It's not complicated. Really, all you have to do is love your kids. But sadly, we live in a world where that does not always happen. I had a conversation uh, about a year ago with someone who tearfully told me an account like this, only it was their own life. And she struggled with frequent self-destructive behavior and a, a, just a fundamental self-loathing. A beautiful, talented songwriter seemed to have everything anyone could want. And her brain wasn't quite developed. Science gives us a couple of clues. One, believe it or not, meditation is remarkably effective at increasing thickness and richness in gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, including the orbitofrontal cortex. So five minutes a day of meditation, moving to 10, moving to 15, get to a half hour a day, six days a week, that's basically like strength training for that part of your brain. Also the anterior cingulate cortex, which is responsible for compassion, empathy, and lots of great things in humans, is there. The other piece, frankly, your social world has to encompass a lot of people who love you unconditionally. So there's this tendency we have to tough love people, especially people that act out destructively. But when those people are acting out because of poor neurological development, because of very, very difficult early childhoods, 
tough love doesn't help. <laughs> boundaries help, certainly. But boundaries in the context of I love you, I am going to be in your life. Never withhold affection or try to manipulate someone struggling with basic shame by saying, if you don't, then our relationship is over, right? So really, you're, you're, the two tools I understand would be meditation and very rich, very safe relationships. Maybe share some of that research. And, and also, in situations like these, I always recommend the involvement of a neurologically grounded and knowledgeable mental health professional, right? There's a lot of, like, family counselors that do good work but don't necessarily have the tool set to deal with things that are truly oriented in brain tissue. But someone like that is going to be able to offer a, an individualized program that can offer coping strategies and tips uh, that could help a more normal life. This isn't a death sentence, right? Sometimes the people who suffer the most have the most incredible stories, and in doing that are also the most likely to remake the world. A young Steve Jobs probably dealt with basic shame. Parents, you know, were adoptive folks, and he wandered through the wilderness, and yet he kind of, like, reinvented everything as a result. So don't stigmatize either. Make any sense? Awesome. Hey, I'm Erin. I'm from Indiana. Um, so, okay, my question is, we have all these space probes out there and mm -hmm. Hubble telescope. And so how do we match that of heaven with people that have had near-death experiences mm. and the stories that they tell? How does that all come together and make sense? 35-minute <laughs> answer. Here we go. <laughs> We're going to do uh, physics, neurology, the whole shebang. How do we make sense of... So the Christian church has these beliefs. Number one, they believe very strongly that the end of physical life is not the end of life or even the end of consciousness. There's typically, especially in um, Pauline and Hellenic Christianity, uh, this idea that there's also a heaven, a place that people go after this life and dwell with God. And then you have very popular, great selling books where people describe kind of brushing against that world. Uh, and I often wonder if part of the reason people listen to me is because I tell a story of standing on a beach wherein it seems very much like I encountered a world that doesn't quite belong or fit in this one. Okay? So um, I get this a lot. I haven't had it on the show before, but at a lot of events, people ask me, Where's heaven? Because there's this great thing in the, in the Gospels, uh, and Richard Dawkins is the one that pointed this out, not me, I'm not this clever. But Jesus uh, is like saying, bye everybody, it's been fun, here's some final wisdom. Now I'm going to ascend into heaven, right? Which in that world, in that model of cosmology where there was a firmament, these big sheets <laughs> around this, the, the earth uh, with holes in them and the Stars with a light of heaven shining through. Of course, Jesus like went off the surface of the earth, up toward the firmament, and like probably a trap door opened, 
and then he was in heaven. And that makes sense. And then you like put the Hubble telescope out there, or you put people on Mars, and they look back at the moon. They look back at the moon. What did I just say? Did I say Mars? <laughs> There's no people on Mars. I failed at my one job, science. You put people on the moon, and they look back at the Earth. And you send Voyager, the spacecraft, or New Horizons more recently, beyond Pluto and out into the solar system, and they never hit anything. And you aim Hubble out, and they never hit anything. And then you think, like, so if the Earth is spinning and it's orbiting the sun, and we wound the clock back to when we thought Jesus was alive, and about when he ascended, would he make a straight line to heaven? Like, where did he ascend? And how fast was he going? Because... You know what I mean? Like, like there's, we've got spacecraft out there now that it takes like nine hours, or in the case of Voyager, like 17 or 18 hours for radio signals from that craft to reach the Earth. So like, is that why Jesus hasn't come back? Is he like, <laughs> is he like relativistically accelerating towards the new heaven? And then... Like, maybe he just gets there and be like, it worked, and then he comes back? Like, is that how it works? Like, it doesn't make sense in modern cosmology. So this is kind of uh, where I live. This is how I think. This is why I'm a confused and conflicted individual most of the time, because I both deeply believe that there is something that we call God, and that in a real way, Jesus was an in incarnation of this God, but all the ways that we have to understand Jesus were written by people who understood that the earth was inside a firmament, and that the ascension was a literal moment of transportation like catching the bus. So, where could heaven be? Well, it could be right here, first of all. There's an idea in physics, the most popular idea in physics, that talks about how gravity and quantum physics work together, that everything is made of strings, one-dimensional strings. You with me? Really? It's amazing if you're actually with me. So this, uh, this cup is three-dimensional. It has height, and it has width, and it has depth, right? So we can describe this cup as math in three dimensions, really four, because it, it moves around in time. Uh, but regardless, if this cup was two-dimensional, right, it would just be flat, and you got, it would just be, it would have no side. It would just be two dimensions, height and width. So we're talking about one-dimensional, like a line but not a line, because you're really looking at the edge of a line when you look at a line. It doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> But the idea is these strings vibrate, and they vibrate in 11 dimensions. Well, that doesn't make any sense. We're in three. We can't imagine four and certainly not nine or 11. But the whole idea is if you look at quantum effects, particles literally appear and disappear in different spots and don't travel the distance in between them. And string theory says they're traveling that distance in extra dimensions of space-time. So if you'd imagine for me just for a second that we're all two-dimensional. So just imagine we're all in a piece of paper. There's no up or down. There's only left, right, forward, back. And we'd all be dots on that piece of paper. Now imagine that a sphere passed through our piece of paper. What would you see? You would see a dot 
a point like us that turned into a circle and got bigger and bigger and bigger and then shrunk back down to a point and then disappeared. And you could take that sphere and put it back in the sheet of paper over here and we go, oh my gosh, it teleported. No, you just picked it up and moved it in a third dimension, right? So the idea in physics is that's how the world works. We're only experiencing a limited number of dimensions. Why? Because the other dimensions are curled up like a pig's tail. <laughs> I'm not making this up. It's science. If that's the case, then there could be lots and lots of universes stacked on top of each other in something called membrane theory. And if heaven, as described in the scripture, is actually a separate physical realm from this one, then you could actually imagine that heaven is laid over this universe centimeters away in dimensions of space-time we can't travel. That's one idea to think about. Heaven, near-death experiences, can actually be described pretty well in neuroscience. If you take uh, test pilots or test astronauts and you put them in a centrifuge and you spin them really fast, they spin and spin and spin and spin and spin, eventually the heart can't create enough blood pressure to keep enough oxygen in the brain to keep you awake. And those guys have out-of-body experiences and they see tunnels of light and they pass through a tunnel of light and they see their loved ones and then they fall asleep and then they wake up with a terrible headache because the brain hates oxygen deprivation. But you can imagine that most of the near-death experiences we encounter can totally, completely be explained with airtight explanations by neuroscience. You don't need anything magical or supernatural to make them happen. Even this neurosurgeon who said he like crawled around like a worm and then was a butterfly, uh, he had an infection in his his neocortex, the human part of the brain. So all that stuff was shut down, and his more primitive, literally worm-like brain kept running. <laughs> yeah, it felt a lot like being a worm. And as he recovered, his prefrontal cortex tried to make sense of these memories because our, our brains don't like it when things don't make sense, and we're constantly spinning a narrative in which we are the protagonist. And so it becomes, I went to heaven, and I came back. That's the science. At the same time, I have stood on a beach and I have watched the world stretch thin. And I have had a moment where I understood all this tunnel of light, light on the road to Damascus, bush that burned and was not consumed by fire nonsense. It made a lot of sense standing on that beach. So not as a matter of science but as a matter of being open to and trusting this experience, I lean into the idea that these experiences in Scripture, near death, and maybe even in physics, are pointing to the fact that there is more even to material reality than we think most of the time. I mean, here we are, a room of, like, particles. <laughs> and, like, for some reason... Trillions of particles are organized here and these electrical signals are happening and causing an air pump that's made of squishy tissue to operate and is shaking the air in pressure waves and that's getting picked up by little vibrating membranes in your ear turned into electrical signals and a logical symbolic thought 
encapsulated as physics here, transports as pressure waves, and appears here. And we talk about, well, there's nothing supernatural. That's crazy! <laughs> like, the stuff we know is miraculous. So that's kind of my thing. We don't have to wonder what more. We already know that what is is miraculous and beautiful. And I just lean into that and hope that it's a sign that when we reach out in fear and doubt and confusion towards that which made us somehow, it reaches back. All right, I'm Pat. Thanks for coming to Texas. Right on. Um, If I were to be overly simplistic, you could say that there's kind of two groups of believers. One who are comfortable saying that their theology can evolve, whether personally or, or as an institution, they can look back and say, there's things that I once really firmly held, but I got that one wrong. And then there's maybe another group who would say there are certain things which are, are, are dogma, which are uh, incapable that we, we've decided it, and, and there's, there's nothing I personally can, can do to, to change um, what an institution or what a book or, or what have you speaks uh, about that. You've kind of taken up a career path building bridges between those two groups. So I guess what, what tips or advice do you have of how do you get those two groups to, to talk to one another? Wow, that is a fantastic question. <laughs> First of all, the career thing was on accident. It wasn't too long ago that um, I told large companies how to sell things on the Internet and fixed computers. Um, and then I sort of stumbled into this because people kept downloading my podcast. And um, that's the whole story. How do you build that bridge? One, I start with a basic respect for every person. And I hold whatever they think in grace because I understand that human brains are running software and that each brain didn't design most of its own software. It was received from an environment and then decisions were made on top of it. I also understand as I've studied more and more scientifically that all kinds of different belief systems have advantages in different social contexts, different survival situations, for example. My like really open, mystical, scientific way of viewing the world would not be particularly effective if society collapsed and I had to gather my own food and fight predators for survival, I'd be the first one dead, right? So I think there's a great gift in knowing what you know and experiencing true certainty, because I've done that, and then losing it. Because there's a humility you can't let go of when you have come to the end of everything you know and found it lacking. And so I realize that right now, there are a bunch of things that I think are true that aren't, and I don't have any way to figure out which is which, other than time and looking at evidence, right? So for example, let's see, what's a, what's a beautifully controversial topic today? Uh, I'll go there, so I'm like all for same-sex marriage. I'm in, no problem. And I have a lot of gay friends really good friends, and I also have friends who are close to me who think it's a sin for my other friends to love each other. And the choice a lot of people make is, I've got to cut ties with somebody. 
And I don't. One, because what if it was actually talking to a gay friend that opened my eyes more than anything? And what if he would have cut me off because I thought the way he expressed love was wrong? Guess what? I'd probably have a podcast, like a really popular podcast, where I talked about why it was not okay for gay people to marry. You see what I mean? So without relationship, we shut off our ability to help each other grow. So really, I think it's all about humility, openness, and respect. And I've found, I say some really off-the-wall controversial things. If you go read the reviews of uh, both my podcasts on the Internet, people say, I love the show. There's so much I don't agree with, but I love the way he talks about things. <laughs> right? And anybody. Like, you know, very progressive people have things I say. They're like, woo, scientists. Have, woo. Now, everybody has something I say they don't agree with. But because people hear that I genuinely respect them as a person and am open to hearing their story of how and why they believe what they believe, they will generally return the favor. Now, some people can't handle it. And to those people, I say, go with grace. I hold nothing against you. The only time I step in and make a hard line is when people are being actively harmed by the actions of another. And that's when I get pretty serious and have difficult conversations. But short of harming another person, I respect people's right and autonomy to believe and act as they please. And I've found, generally, people will do the same for me. Okay, so first you should know I'm very nervous, so if I'm incoherent, I'm so sorry. Um, I definitely fit in the introvert category you spoke about earlier. Um, Okay, so my question actually isn't that scientific, I guess, but it is a follow-up to something you spoke about on an episode a few weeks ago. Um, You talked about daily prayer and kind of what your routine is for that. Um, I know you talked about that. For you, a lot of uh, the time, daily prayer involves um, like awareness and gratitude and scripture reading and surrender, I think. Um, And that is something like the place I'm in right now, I... That's what my prayer is like. But um, I grew up Southern Baptist, and so the way I was taught to pray, yeah, um, the way I was taught to pray is a lot different than the way I pray now. Um, And one thing that was just huge growing up was intercessory prayer. Uh And with all the changes I've been making lately with my deconstruction and reconstruction and my faith experience, um, I'm having a hard time figuring out if I want to ask God for anything, really, Mm. or just how to have any of the intercessory prayer part of my life back. And I know in that episode you mentioned that you prayed for, um, I think, your friend's son on a regular basis. And so I was just wondering, with your current faith experience, like, what does intercessory prayer look like for you? Like, what's your thought process? What words or phrases do you use? I just would really appreciate getting a picture of what that could look like. Great question. Thank you. Also, seriously, thank you for reminding me what I said, because nobody is less familiar with the show than I am, because it's like I talk into a microphone, and then I like go somewhere and record another show, and I forget like what I talked about. Intercessory prayer is a pickle. So I'll just be totally honest, theologically and logically, I have huge issues with a God who intervenes in the universe. Like, sort of intellectually, I want to put God in this like platonic box like he's this emanating, animating force. I'm saying he again all the time. That you know, that, that's old habit. Uh, but that God 
is God even consciousness aware? Those are temporal conditions. Isn't God beyond time? Like all these things just blow my mind and actually can lead me to moments of profound transcendence. And then there's like my mom and my pastor and my grandmother who like very much believe in a God who intervenes in reality in response to prayer. And I go, that has huge logical consequences. Why is God answering your prayer and not somebody else's? Why, you know, every football team is praying that God <laughs> delivers them the magical trophy or whatever you call it when football teams win the whole, whatever you call a whole set of football games. I don't know about sports. I might have just revealed a little, a little bit of uh, inadequacy there. Um, I'm not embarrassed about how little I know about football, even though it was a big deal when I was a kid in the South. Sorry, digression, that was free. So what's the deal? Like, there's this God that makes sense that I can get behind that is timeless and is basically what you talk about uh, in the initial singularity before the Big Bang or in a black hole. Like, that's God, that physics. But then... There are these moments in my life where God responds to prayer. Now, there's the milk jug thing. Raise your hand if you heard of the milk jug thing. Okay, new material. This is an atheist thing. Basically, they say that all answered prayer is proof texting. That, uh, you know, we basically, and the Christians literally have heard Christians say this. God has three answers. Yes, no, wait. Okay. Those are the only possible outcomes to any event. <laughs> there is no other option. And so when I was losing my faith, I read The God Delusion, and Richard Dawkins had this challenge, pray to a milk jug for three weeks. And so I prayed for a raise at work to 2% milk in my fridge. <laughs> and I got it. <laughs> And at that point, theologically, intercessory prayer died for me. Here's where I'm at. Now, I've set up the tension. How do I resolve it? I'm no longer the guy that has to know everything. I'm no longer the guy that has to have it figured out. I'm the guy who loves the journey to know more, and I never stop trying to learn. But I'm okay if somehow... Different parts of my brain hold different ideas, and they don't perfectly mash up. And here's why. What if God is just an emanating force, and I pray intercessory prayers? Well, number one, we understand that language in the human brain has incredible power. And I don't mean this in a wishy-washy, like, you know, name it and claim it. The universe will give you what you want. Here's the secret way. I mean, literally, the things you think about shape your actions. And so if you pray for someone every day because you love them and they have life circumstances that are difficult, guess what your subconscious brain is doing all the time? Working on solutions. If you pray to God that you want things in life, that you have goals, guess what science tells you? You're going to more effectively pursue those goals. There is no scientific downside to intercessory prayer. Right? So even if all you're doing is self-neuro-linguistically programming your gray matter, it's a really effective way to do it. But if my mom and my grandmother and my pastor are right, and in some way prayer really does tap into that same 
creative energy that made a singularity expand rapidly and create laws of physics and galaxies and planets and people, well, that's, that's like icing on the cake, isn't it? So I don't ever question that God is real. I just question, like, the fidelity of my understanding of who or what God may be. And I just learned that that's fine, that God doesn't need me to understand God, right? I just need God. Full stop. Uh, thanks for coming out. Um, it was your, your life story, um, April of 2014, that actually helped transform me back into uh, the believer I am now. Um, it felt like you were, <laughs> uh, your story actually was actually my own as well, except for, you know, my dad didn't cheat on my mom, um, which is terrible. I hate that for you. Um, my question is, I, speaking of prayer uh, in that same vein, uh, the Bible speaks of uh, speaking in other tongues, this God language. Um, wanted to know your opinions on that and what the neurological science is behind that. Because 1 Corinthians says that basically you're, you're speaking directly to God when you speak in tongues. So just wanted to get your, your opinions and, and uh, what the science is behind that. Man, you like asked the perfect question because I've been waiting to do my tongues routine for months. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I've researched this. Uh, I have never spoken in tongues and as a Southern Baptist, like Southern Baptists like believe in the supernatural and they're also very uncomfortable with it. You know what I mean? So if somebody like gets a little too free in the spirit in a Southern Baptist church, it's like, hold the phone. Is there interpreter? That's not biblical, right? Like just shut it down. So it wasn't really, I didn't start thinking about tongues a lot until I became friends with um, Michael Gunger. He's a musician. If you listen to Liturgist podcast, we co-host together. And he grew up like also conservative, but conservative charismatic. And, like, he literally can speak in tongues, like, actually speak in tongues. And I'm like, hey, man, that's super weird. So <laughs> I had to figure out, like, what's going on. Because people speak in tongues, and they feel like, like someone else is speaking through them. And that's, that's pretty weird. So I understand from an evangelical context where, like, you feel like God is speaking to you in your mind, in your native tongue, and I've seen the research that explains that, but that's not what you asked, so I won't go there. Instead, I will tell you that most prayer in most faith traditions looks very similar in the brain. The same parts of the brain are lit up, whether it's a Buddhist monk or a Catholic nun or a Baptist preacher. The brain scans are remarkably similar. The big difference is Western religion tends to involve the left temporal lobe where language happens. Eastern religion tends to involve the visual cortex where visualization happens. But otherwise, God in those brains is very similar. That's not true for speaking in tongues or charismatics. Their prayer, their speaking in tongues, is the most neurologically distinct form of prayer or worship we have yet encountered in science. And here's why. Most prayer involves the outermost regions of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the anterior cingulate cortex, which is a little deeper in the brain, but still in a pretty nice neighborhood. 
And uh, that was a brain joke. I really, I was into it. And, uh, you know, the, the parietal lobe. And then left temporal lobe or visual cortex. And all that stuff's off when you speak in tongues. So, like, the part of your brain that you associate with being conscious and aware and in control just kind of takes a nap when people speak in tongues. And instead, the limbic system, the most ancient, most visceral, powerful part of the brain, literally takes control over the left temporal lobe and goes, make sounds! <laughs> but the limbic system <laughs> can't, it can't form symbolic language like the prefrontal cortex to feed to the left temporal lobe. So the temporal lobe goes, all right, well, I know these word sounds. Is that cool? And the limbic system says, whatever, man, this is exciting. <laughs> and then it's like, I can't do it. I can't even emulate speaking in tongues. But this something that sounds like a language that's not a known language emerges. And that language is the language of the most ancient part of the human brain. And so in a very real way, it feels like something other than you is talking because it's not the you you associate with listening to me right now. It's a part of your brain that's not actively involved in your conscious experience unless you're very afraid, very angry, or very excited. So that's why it's such an amazing and moving experience. Now, does that mean it's the voice of God? Does that mean, I don't know, is the, like, is consciousness literally just a thing that emerges like software from the fabric of our brains? Or as some people believe, our brains kind of like very elaborate antennas that tune into the spirit world or some quantum reality. Beats the heck out of me. Either way, what I know about speaking in tongues is cool enough that I wish that I could do it too. Hey, uh, I'm Matt, and I'm a worship leader. Uh, and I'm wondering, other than the fact that people tend to uh, enjoy music, what are some benefits of communal worship for the people involved? Fantastic question. That is the first question that uh, Rob Bell asked me the night I met Michael Gunger, believe it or not, as a way to like uh, let Michael know I wasn't some idiot fraud, which I kind of am, but... I fooled Michael. So <laughs> basically, music is incredible, neurologically. Like, music engages more of your brain than almost anything you can do. Uh, your brain has to create a neurological symphony in order for you to experience an auditory symphony, right? The association cortices of your brain, the thalamus, the, uh, not only does your um, left temporal lobe have to engage to analyze the pitch and timbre, of music and the rhythm, but the right lobe has to engage in order to engage the lyrical content that all has to route through the thalamus, go to the prefrontal cortex for you to make sense of it and analyze it, and yet at the same time you are stirred emotionally. It's one of the few circumstances where we have pretty significant activity in both the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. I mean, it's beautiful, and that's just alone with some earbuds or a really nice stereo. Something different happens when you bring in social identity. As human beings, we have an incredible amount of neurological real estate devoted to understanding how other people are thinking and feeling, especially about us. And yet, in narrative situations, when you're hearing a story, or music situations, when you're enjoying perform music, 
you don't actually think about yourself very much. It's one of the most neurologically pure social experiences you can have because you're not fixated on self. This effect is so powerful that research has shown that bands or choirs or other groups that are either very professional and play a lot or just have played a lot together, as they perform music, they enter a rate of cardio synchronization. Their heartbeats actually start to line up together. Like, it is the most transcendent experience you can have. And so there's this bit we do. Um, I shouldn't call it a bit. <laughs> there's this thing we do in liturgist events where I come out and I explain that. And then we play a heartbeat and we ask a group of people who think there's something special about a guy named Jesus. If we all worship together in this room, could the heart of the resurrected body of Christ beat as one right now? And that's got actual scientific basis. It's crazy. So I've, it's brought this whole new thing in me because I got really cynical about worship music and thought it was manipulative and exploitive while I was a Southern Baptist atheist, so that was kind of conflicted. <laughs> like, I don't believe in God, but I play in the worship band. I remember we would just sing this stuff, and I'd be like, I am literally indoctrinating people right now, and this is sick, but I'm also pretty good at the bass guitar, and this is fun. And I'm not even kidding. I actually really like the way I play the bass guitar. But, uh, but at the same time, as I, like, return to faith, I had this whole new appreciation through science that there may be no moment when we are more an eye and a toe and a mouth and a body together than when we worship together in song. It's really beautiful. Uh, so I'm a theist. I'm not a Christian. But I want to believe in God, and I have had a personal experience with God. Uh, my atheist friends, when I try to explain it to them, they say, oh, that's just God of the gaps, or your brain was doing some weird thing. As someone that uh, you claim to be a man of science, and so I'm assuming that your beliefs will change based on evidence that you evaluate and gather, are there things that you're afraid to learn or things that would be scary for you? Fantastic question. Um, I love that you, you just throw it out. You claim to be a man of science. <laughs> That's scientific. Like, skeptical about a claim of science. That's science. Like, rock on, man. Um, yeah, I follow evidence where it goes, which will really surprise you when I say there's absolutely nothing I'm afraid to learn. Because I don't have, like, a set of rigid propositions by which I am a Christian. Right? Like, there's no, like, essential creed for my faith. Um, have you ever heard of my faith axioms? You ever hear that? Okay, so it's a thing. Um, I wrote a series on doubt for people like me who are kind of incredulous about this whole thing, but also kind of into this whole thing. <laughs> and basically, it's a set of science-based propositions that justify Christian faith and practice, irrespective of the truth claims. Okay? So, for example... When I describe God in these axioms, I would say God is at least the set of natural forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a psychosocial construct rooted in human brains. 
rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> At least, meaning my idea, my definition is incomplete, which is okay in science. Our definition of gravity is pretty incomplete, right? If we like the standard model works really well, except it ignores gravity, and yet we know gravity not only exists, but exists on a quantum level, because photons are quantum objects who are heavily affected by what? Gravity. So we already have an at least definition for gravity, so if it's good enough for gravity, it's good enough for God. So this is like the floor. Like, I would accept evidence that disproved that there were a set of forces that create and sustain the universe, <laughs> but like, like the Higgs boson makes me pretty confident that's a claim I can defend. And I would accept information that said that there is no way of understanding the universe in human brains that incorporates God. But I feel pretty confident that people believe in God. Do you see what I mean? My idea of God is already wide open. And so then the second part of this axiom is to say even if. And I say even if that's a comprehensive definition of God, belief in God can still promote lower stress, healthy brain tissue, greater social cohesion, and increased social action toward good. In other words, even if there's nothing more to God than physics and a shared mental experience, that's enough to make Christian faith worth it, or at least faith in general. So I have axioms that go through kind of all the things of the Christian experience, meaning when I have a dark night of the soul, I can at least go to the axiom and go, I'm not wasting my time, right? I believe... There was an actual guy named Jesus who walked the earth. And I also understand that that is an academic consensus, that the, the mythicists about Christ are a, a minority position. They may amass more data and become more popular in the future. And as that happens, believe me, I'm listening closely. But there's no significant academic controversy that Jesus was a person. In fact, Richard Dawkins caught quite a bit of heat from secular historians for asserting that there's no Jesus, that's a myth, it's all made up. And, you know, like we have more textual historical information to support that Jesus is an actual person than Alexander the Great, and nobody is like, Alexander the Great was a myth. So the real, like, point of controversy is, was this guy God? Did he, like, get crucified, put in a grave... And was he resurrected? And that's a big hinge point in the faith. Like Paul says, if that didn't happen, this is all folly. We're wasting our time. I accept that the resurrection happened. I don't actually accept it fully scientifically. I have these moments in my life that make me understand that resurrection is a pattern of this universe that we in this room are nothing but resurrected stars. A star, a sun, in fact, with a U, had to die for us to live. In fact, a sun has to die right now for us to live. The sun is falling into chaos in the process, flooding this planet with electromagnetic radiation that we steal from other plants and animals. Literally, life must die for us to live. And so then I think about an older Christian idea of Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's not just like a catchy last name. The Christ was this idea in Christian theology that in God there is a unifying and reconciling force, an aspect to God that draws us towards the divine. And it does this through rebirth 
and resurrection. And I would argue that today the church might be in a minor state of idolatry over Jesus because we ignore the Christ and that Jesus is the physical embodiment of the Christ. And to focus only on the Christ or only on Jesus is to miss the whole point of this story. And so if I learn one day that the man was a myth, I still experience the Christ. You see what I mean? So there's very little I'm afraid of. I want to be very clear. I absolutely accept a bodily resurrection of Christ as a matter of faith. But I also totally understand why atheists go, are you kidding me? Dead people don't wake up. And I just go, dead matter does. We are here. Um, hi, my name's Alyssa. I'm from, I live in Denton. Right on. And um, I'm a big fan of your show and the liturgist, and I appreciate what you do. Um, so my question is about the church. So it's about um, specifically the way the church deals with mental illness. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, I have a lot of mental illness in my family, and I came from a church that is a mental illness denying church that says it is all a spiritual thing and that it's all demons that are trying to attack you. And <laughs> that if you just pray away the demons, then you will be better. Hmm. And so we get things like exorcisms and really nasty stuff like that. And so my question is, how do you deal with a church that does not believe an illness is a real thing? And how do you like, how do you talk through that? You know, like, how do you process that? And how do you talk to a church that doesn't believe that the person you love who's dealing with an illness is really ill? And that's my question. Okay. Fantastic question. I'll first start with disclosure. I don't get invited to a lot of churches where they don't believe (laughs) in mental illness and they do believe in demons and exorcism. Those guys tend to give me a one-star rating on iTunes. Uh, That's a joke. Uh, I actually don't have any one-star ratings on iTunes. I will after I said that. But um, at the time this was recorded, I had no one-star ratings on iTunes. But they do send me nasty emails. Um, I got, boy, I got a humdinger today. It's like, you know, like the, like the 25-page email of, like, I need to explain in detail why you are going to hell. Um, so it's a real thing. It's a noble impulse. So the whole demonology thing and the possession thing, um, roll the clock back a few centuries, and we don't really understand what's happening here. In fact, we think consciousness comes primarily from the pump in the center of our chest, and the guts lower. Why? Because when we feel things, that's where we feel them. You ever feel an emotion right here, other than like really confused when you listen to my show? (laughs) Other than that, everything's much more visceral. In fact, we have more neurons in our GI tract than any other part of our bodies except for our brains. I don't know if you knew that. It's pretty amazing. Some really cool research related to depression and the GI tract, for example. But when you don't understand that, schizophrenia and you don't understand the neurological mechanisms, what else could it be besides supernatural agents acting in your person? And then you have these rituals, these elaborate rituals like exorcisms, which uh, can bring a state of focus and exhaustion into a human brain and actually relieve these symptoms for a while. And so you get this, like, actually pre-scientific idea where we make an observation. We did this thing. We took 12 hours. We exercised these demons. And the person was better 
for six to eight hours. But like, if you're like the traveling exorcist, they're just better. <laughs> and you go to the next town. And then because people experience social pressure, like I'm better. Remember, we reject information that subverts our identity. So maybe when the schizophrenia returns in small measures, they're able to suppress it more because they believe they are healed. This is what we talk about when we talk about the power of positive thinking. So I start by, as always, offering some grace to the position. And then I follow that up with a question that's sincere but occasionally kind of jerky. How's that working for you? Oh, you've had 41 exorcisms on this person, so that demon's really in there, huh? (laughs) Like the matchless name of Jesus Christ is meeting its match? Like what's happening here? What if... We keep trying the exorcisms, and we just try a therapist as well. Like, I'm not even going to go into there's no such thing as demons, but maybe maybe for some reason this person wants to hold on to the demon, and so maybe with some therapy they could really let go. Do you see what I mean? Or maybe, maybe, let's say, okay, so uh, cancer seems to get better when we use chemotherapy drugs. Maybe there's a... Maybe there's a neurological predisposition that makes demon possession easier that we could treat with drugs. Like, I don't, I'm such a pragmatist. I don't feel like I have to correct everybody on everything if we can make an inch of progress towards making things meaningfully better. See what I mean? So I don't have to, like, convince them demons don't exist. All I have to convince them of is we could do maybe something else that might also help this person. Because some of the most hurtful and harmful things that fill up my email box are people who have genuine mental illness and the hurt they have received by every, and I mean every, Christian denomination. It's not just the hardcore conservatives. My beloved United Methodists can say some pretty messed up things about mental illness. And this is not unique even to religion. We have a stigma against mental illness in society. We have a mass shooting, and we say that person was ill. They were mentally ill. There was something wrong in their head. And what we understand statistically is it is far more likely for someone who is mentally ill to be a victim of violence than a perpetrator. It's not even close, right? The crazy homeless guy walking down the street, he's going to hurt himself or get mugged. He's not going to go after your wallet. So education is powerful. You know, some people, because of their epistemology, because of their social identity, won't accept statistics as a point of persuasion. There's not a lot I can do. But the people who will listen, I make a case based on data that the approach to mental illness is not correction. It's not punitive. It's not persecuting that they don't have enough faith, but to offer them not only grace, but more grace than our more mainline neurologically functioning brothers and sisters. Hi, my name's Thomas. Um, I was reading recently about the quantum Zeno effect, uh, how particles behave differently when we observe them. Okay. And I was wondering if you could explain to that maybe what that means for like the human experience. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, that I'm actually shocked I haven't been asked in the history of the show. So there's this thing you hear all the time that consciousness does something to the universe, guys. Quantum physics tells us that quantum effects only happen with an observer. And that's true 
but oversimplified. <laughs> okay, and here, here's, here's how I explain it. So there's basically uh, some kind of wave slit experiment is one way you, you do this. You take uh, a box and some film, and you let a photon into that box. One photon. It's pretty tough to do, but, but we got some pretty good engineers out there. So you let one photon into the box. And without an observer, one photon will travel every possible point it could from the entry point in the box, and we'll put a line on a piece of film, a line like a wave would. If you have an observer of that one photon, then this photon picks one path. Instead of going every point it could in a wave, it takes one path and it puts a dot on the film. Now the head trip here is if you take a photon that was emitted by some star millions of light years away and you capture that photon without observing it and you let it into the box, it does the same thing. And as Stephen Hawking says, that means by observing, you get a photon to make a decision billions of years ago. <laughs> right? Or millions, excuse me. It's hard to get light from billions of years. Redshift is a thing. But millions of years away comes and makes a dot or a wave. What? That's weird. God is real. Like, that's kind of how the internet discussion happens. Checkmate atheists, right? Here's the, here's the uh, scientific rock in that shoe of belief. How does an observer observe with a particle interaction? Right? So everything that happens between atoms in physics involves the exchange of particles. For example, the reason you can see, oh, that this is blue and this is green is because we heat up with electricity a filament and a light bulb, and then that makes the atoms jiggle more, and they have hot body radiation, hot body radiation. They, um, <laughs> you can't see on the show I made a sexy dance for everybody, for those of you listening. Just imagine it. So you have a photon that emits from hot body radiation, right? It jumps out of the atom because an electron moves to a higher level and then collapses down, and it emits a photon. And that photon, through light speed, comes to the air, and it strikes an atom in this cup. And depending on the structure of that atom, it makes an electron. The, the atom absorbs that energy. An electron jumps out into a higher electron shell and then falls back down, and the difference between where it is and where it went is emitted as a photon of this wavelength, green or blue. It's a particle exchange. So the only way you can observe anything is to send a particle. So when you have an observer, something sends a quantum object that hits that photon and causes its wave function to collapse from a probabilistic event to a specific event. It literally goes from being a wave to being a point, a particle. So that's how observation works. So your observer doesn't actually have to be conscious. Your observer can simply be a machine that makes an observation, an instrument. Right? So it kind of throws a wrench in. The universe needs consciousness to exist, which I got really excited about for a while. And then I kept studying physics. To your point, it's nothing I'm afraid to learn. I just integrate new findings into my worldview. Yeah, so the, it, it's all wave-particle duality. Minute physics is a great thing on it. Uh, the whole idea of like the uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, you can't know both uh, a 
particle's position and its velocity. The more you know about one, the less you know about the other. And it's literally because you imagine like a water molecule in an actual wave. So you either know the position of one particle and where it is exactly, but that doesn't tell you anything about a wave because a wave has what? A trough and a crest, and it's hard to know exactly what a wave is. So the more you look out, the less you're looking at one water molecule, you're looking at a wave instead. That's wave-particle duality, but just that fast. Man, great physics questions tonight. Hi, my name's Tanner from Fort Worth. So uh, my question is, with different religions, um, how, I guess with your axiom of, of what God may be, he's at least this thing, is there really any difference in your mind between the way that different <clears throat> beliefs approach God, the way that Buddhists approach kind of existence or, or spirituality, the way that Christians approach that, the way that that really any any person does? And I guess kind of the second part of that is, does it really matter from a moral standpoint? You know, from mm. traditional standpoints, we say, well, we have to meet these moral principles somehow, but then God came and and saved us from the, our faults. But ultimately, if um, if that doesn't matter, if God is... It's kind of, kind of a universalist question. You know, how would you approach like a traditional view versus a universal view? All right, so let me repeat the question, make sure I got it. Are all religions the same? And what does that mean for how men are saved? Kind of? Yeah, or, or if there is any saving to do. If there is any saving to do, yeah. So that kind of gets into soteriology or soterology. I've only read it. I can't pronounce it. Um <laughs> Like, I've mentioned it on one show, someone asked about it, and I literally went to YouTube and listened to a clip of someone saying it <laughs> over and over and over to make sure I pronounce it right, but here's the problem. I have a learning disability specifically related to recalling the way things are pronounced or spoken. <laughs> so the more I listen, the more I question what the right pronunciation is. And that's why I say things like Arab on the show. So it's terrible. It's Arab. It's Arab. It's Arab. And if I don't think, I say Arab every time. <laughs> Ah, so sorry to my Arab listeners. Like, now you understand I'm not actually insensitive. I'm just stupid. So there's this thing. There's absolutely theological differences between religions. Not all religions are the same. Not all sects within religions are the same. Not all views of salvation in Christianity are are the same. My evangelical brothers and sisters want to know if you had a moment in which you believed and professed and said a sinner's prayer. And one of my mainline friends said to me once, show me the sinner's prayer in the New Testament. I went, what? what? We're the people of the book. You don't think we thought of that? I mean, it's in our name. We're Baptist, right? The reason we immerse is because the word in Greek means to immerse. The sinner's prayer is in there somewhere. I'll get back with you. And like I couldn't find it, right? There were these moments where there was a call to action to be born again, but like there never was like the, the admit, believe, confess I learned in vacation Bible school. And then you go to like a Wesley and a more mainline view of salvation where it's this journey of fellowship with Christ where you have this continual 
sanctification and this ongoing salvation. And then Baptists go, but you, there's eternal security of the believer. You can't gain and lose salvation. And the Orthodox go, you Westerners messed up the whole thing. Like, that's why we excommunicated the Catholics to begin with. And the Catholics go, hold on, we excommunicated you. It was called the Great Schism. How do you know who to believe about salvation and what salvation means and what heaven means? And I have no idea. I have no idea. Like, the more I study the history of the church and where these beliefs came from and where they emerged. Like, I know the ones that came earlier. Like, if you want, you can get a historical record of a claim, then the Greek Orthodox have, like, a pretty good thing. Like, they have earlier writings of what it meant to be saved than anybody else. And they say that to be saved is a call to being healed in God. That the world is somehow sick and God heals it. That's their soterology. That there is inevitable drawing from God to us that pulls us towards this healing and reconciling. And I think that's beautiful. But if you take these salvation ideas and you like pull out the clipboard and the oscilloscope and you try to measure them, there's no fact claim. <laughs> like there's no ability to reconcile salvation claims with science, because you can't prove people get saved in the first place. So when I look at salvation, I have one of those axioms for it, right? Um, and it's really stripped down, and it's really basic. basic. It's essentially that there's a tension between the social parts of the human brain and the primitive parts of the human brain. The social parts, the newer parts of our brains, want us to get along and to coexist, and the inner brain wants to look out for this organism above all. And there you get what we call a sin nature. And to be saved is to be delivered from this conflict. I happen to believe that the story of Jesus is a fantastic way to instruct people on how to resolve this conflict. But when I lean into my faith, my experiences with God, here's what I know. I have legitimately tried to be a Buddhist. I have legitimately tried to be a Muslim. I've legitimately tried to be Hindi. I, I, uh, I window shopped as <laughs> so I became an atheist. Like, and for me, it's the Jesus story. Is that social conditioning? Yeah, it probably is. I don't know. But God responds to me through Christ and the story of Christ when I look at scientific studies, a focus on others and a sacrifice of needs of self are neurologically demonstrated to help resolve this tension so science says it's okay, it's not, it's not destructive, and after that I just kind of do the thing I always do, which is allow the parts of my brain that so believe this rabbi was the son of God that I just try to follow after him. I literally just try to walk like he walked and talk to people like he talked to people and just do the full-on student of a rabbi thing. And I just try to be like Jesus. And I've stopped trying to treat salvation and theology and Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and God as this Rubik's Cube where I'm trying to get green on all one side. And instead, try to let my life be the evidence 
that resurrection is a thing. Okay, so that does it for this week's Ask Science Mike. I think it's probably the longest episode ever, so if you've had to listen on multiple commutes in your car, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be honest, I've had a good time in Texas. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.